do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Learn how a journey which started in the environmental bubble of Arizona in the US led to a high-end fashion career with shows for Gucci, Prada, front covers of Vogue, and much more where our guest of today was exposed to the incredible destruction of the fashion industry, which awoke an activist in her. She dove deep into the issues and found solutions which all tied back to the soil. Now she continues to be a model for the high-end fashion industry, but she uses her voice and her position to push for sustainable materials and practices, which are there. And while at the same time acting as a global ambassador to promote biodynamic farming and explain time and time again why it holds the solution to the issues we face, the climate crisis, biodiversity, water, health, and more. And she has to explain time and time again why it's not a farming practice for quote-unquote hippie weirdos. Enjoy. This is the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast, Investing as if the Planet Mattered where we talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land and our sea, grow our food, what we eat, wear and consume. And it's time that we as investors, big and small, and consumers start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. To make it easy for fans to support our work, we launched our membership community. And so many of you have joined us as a member. Thank you. If our work created value for you, and if you have the means, and only if you have the means, consider joining us. Find out more on gumroad.com slash investing in regenag. That is gumroad.com slash investing in regenag or find the link below. So welcome today to a very special interview with the Greenpeace Ocean Ambassador, founder of the charity Dirt and model and advisory board member of the US Biodynamic Demeter Alliance and friend of the show, Arizona Muse. Welcome, Arizona. Hello, it's so great to be here. I'm a longtime listener of the show and it's just such an honor to be chatting with you in um, officially now. And... Of course, people can Google you. There, I, I will put a, there's a nice interview with Elle magazine, actually, which I will put in the show notes as well. But just to briefly, also not that briefly, if you want to, uh, a bit of your background. How did you roll into modeling, first of all? And then when did this, I would say, sustainability side first started? And then, of course, we'll go into the regenerative biodynamic side. But what, what's, what started your, your sustainability journey? Is, was that one moment? Was that... Um, seeing certain things was it a, a gradual story what was uh, what was the trigger there to because I think you can stay in the in the fashion industry for a very long time without looking at the sustainability side but you decided to to face it head-on basically okay since you're asking I'll tell you a bit of my life story <laughs> I was born in Arizona which is where I got the name my mom is English and she was pregnant in the desert in the Sonoran Desert in Tucson and I think uh, just was overwhelmed by the pregnancy maybe, but also by the beauty of the desert and decided to name me Arizona. Then I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is highly populated by environmentalists. So I thought my worldview was that there are too many environmentalists. I'm going to go and do something more radical, like go into fashion. <laughs> and so I became a model. And then I realized that there was 
more for me. And I found my passion at age 26, 27. And my passion is environmentalism, going right back to where I came from. And of course, I learned what you would imagine that environmentalists are not overpopulated in the world. And it's actually quite an underdog position to have taken. And I love it so much. The work I'm able to do as an activist, I now call myself an activist proudly, because that's what I'm doing. So I'll go back a step. I was invited to a lunch on biodiversity. This was the first moment for me when I was, I think, 26 or 27, that I realized, wow, why isn't this word, biodiversity, being used? Why did used? you accept that? Why did you accept the lunch? Because I'm imagining you were invited for a lot of different things, say no to and said no to a lot of random. things. It was pretty random. It was pretty random, actually. It was a friend who invited me to, yeah, as you say, a charity lunch, and I'd been to many, and... And I just went and I was surprised that this word biodiversity wasn't being used in front of me frequently. In fact, this was the first time that I was really engaging with the word biodiversity and going, wow, why not? Why aren't we talking about this? This seems really important. And so that for me was was my beginning moment. And then I started to research fashion. And as you can imagine, found a lot of negative information, but also a lot of non-information. This was seven years ago, and it was still relatively unknown that fashion was causing an immense amount of damage to ecosystems, human welfare, through the dyeing process, the growing process of fibers and leather, the tanning process of leather, and, and all the transport that's involved. So there is immense, not to mention the packaging as well, immense waste and, and a lot of opacity around that waste I didn't even know Though I had been at the core of the fashion industry for such a long time, I didn't even know how clothes were made. And that really shocked me too. I was like, well, again, why not? Why don't I know this stuff? I've been in the showrooms and in the fittings for the shows of the most, the biggest, most amazing fashion houses in the world. I got very lucky and my career went super well straight away. And I've done campaigns for Prada and Chanel and so many of the other big fashion houses and been in, on the covers of Vogue for years. And that is kind of crazy that I managed to do all of that without ever realizing the impact that this industry was really having. So I started to educate myself and I could never go back. And I now say in my activism, knowledge protects you. Knowledge protects you from making poor decisions, from making decisions that cause harm to the environment and to the people around you. And the knowledge isn't scary, weirdly. I mean, I can tell you I am happier than I've ever been. I am more excited about life than I've ever been since I became an activist about climate change, about the climate crisis that we're all living through and that we're all causing in some way or another. I mean, have you flushed a toilet ever? Do you eat food? Okay, you're part of the climate crisis. <laughs> it's, it's all of us. And I think it's nice to just get that out there with a smile and a laugh because until you admit to yourself that you're causing problems, it's very easy to just um, kind of pretend they're on the other side of the room or the other side of the world, even worse. And that it's, it's not really up to me. I'm just one tiny drop in the ocean. I can't really do much. I don't really have a big impact. All those little things that we tell ourselves, it's just not true. Each one of us has an immense impact. I'll give you my plastic water bottle example that I love that, you know, if I make it a policy in my life that I don't drink water from plastic bottles, that means I will save thousands of plastic bottles over my lifetime. 
suddenly you realize it makes a difference. Whereas that one time that you're like, oh, I'm not going to buy the plastic water bottle. You're like, oh, it doesn't really make a difference. But over the course of your lifetime, it makes an immense difference. Now think of your bathrooms. How many do you have plus your, plus your kitchen sink? Do they all have plastic soap bottles sitting there next to them? Or do they have bars of soap that were unwrapped and that sit on soap dishes? Now imagine those three or four bathrooms maybe and the kitchen sink. And over the course of your entire lifetime, wow, that's a lot of plastic bottles. Plastic bottles, sorry. So just always and think plastic about... plastic bottles as well, yeah. Plastic bottles. <laughs> Probably and actually in restaurants, etc., or, or with other people, let's say the plastic bottle becomes sometimes a plastic bottle, but it's very, very interesting. And the signaling effect, I think, is super strong. But I want to take it one step backwards because you said, I became a model, I went into the heart of the fashion industry. Did you do that with the idea of stepping away from the environmental, let's say, scene or bubble you grew up in? Or was it really, okay, I want to be as far away as possible, or I want to learn maybe among an industry that's not really known? Like, did you do it with an idea of um, on the sustainability side or just I want to be far away from home? I want to go into a very different lifestyle, a very different... And, and then what happened there to sort of pull you back to the environmentalist? Or was there a trigger? Was Because you could, could have done the modeling quote-unquote thing for a long time without ever worrying about the waste but some something triggered there not the biodiversity learn lunch i think it was already before that triggered that like wow this is a very very wasteful industry or, or an industry that really needs to 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 look in the mirror literally and see what, what's happening what what triggered that or did you know that already from from basically where you grew up So my entrance into modeling, like like many models, was very random. I happened to be a certain height, and I happened to look, in quotes, pretty for this era. I mean, look at how beauty across the ages in, in history has really changed so much. So it's really very random, and I really mean that. I just happened to be in the right time, in the right place. But also, it's caused a lot of problems in my life. So I don't want to say that I'm... I'm grateful for some of the things that it brought, but it also um, brought me down in many, many ways, emotionally, physically. It's it's not a job that builds people up and it's not an industry that builds people up. And that can cause a lot of problems. And just my self-esteem was extremely, extremely low, which is contrary to what you might think of a model. Like I looked at all the pictures of me and just saw the problems and the flaws. I didn't think of myself as being, wow, amazing. Oh, she looks so good. Not at all. So it was causing immense kind of trauma on my mental health and, and the way I thought of myself, which was paralyzing. So I also feel like this moment where I found this purpose in life was tremendously valuable to me yeah, as a person, yeah. my growth, my development, It's just, it brought me out of that, which was, and now I can move and I can think and my brain works so much better. And it's really, it's, it's amazing to me to realize that you can, one can, anyone can really find themselves later on. Like I, I didn't, I was quite directionless in my twenties and didn't really know. I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. And I was in a very high powered career that was taking so much time. I mean, I, To give one example, in Milan Fashion Week, you have drivers because the public transport isn't great. And you, so you, my driver drove for 112 hours that week. That means that I was working 112 hours that week because my driver would drive me to all the appointments I had and wait outside while I had the appointment. And then I'd get in the car and drive again. It's a whole culture, the model driver culture during Milan Fashion Week. And actually, for, 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 let's say, the public 
Transport in Milan is pretty good, but of course not that fast and not that direct oh, yes. as you can Sorry. have it. Even. No, I'm not. No, no, it's, it's interesting. Not like they're at Milanese uh, public transport. But yeah, at all. if you have if you have to do <laughs> 120 hours of, of work, you you cannot go subway in train in bus in and out. You need a driver, and and that's that's a lot of hours. It's a and lot it, of hours. I think hours. people forget that they see the pictures and they don't see. I mean, in general, they see. The, the piece of fashion, they see the piece of food or they see the picture and they don't see the hundred hours that, that go into that. Or and the then, 65 I mean, people that go are on, in the background on every shoot and that nobody sees. Like it's, 65. this industry is so enormous when it comes to energy, human energy, fossil fuel energy, and just, and time energy. It's really, really a big deal, which is why it carries such tremendous importance in in the face of climate change and the and the solutions. And there are incredible solutions that are being found in the sustainable fashion industry. And at the moment, it still seems like the sustainable fashion industry is separate from the the normal fashion industry. And my dear friend and mentor Ursula de Castro, the founder of Fashion Revolution, has a great quote where she says she would prefer that. <laughs> that the sustainable fashion industry were just called the fashion industry and the other one was called the unsustainable fashion industry. And I just, I think that's such a perfect encapsulation of the future we need to move to. Like this, what we do needs to become normal. Do you remember the first time you you saw like potential, like solutions because you started to go deep into, let's say the issues, quote unquote, not not quote, actually the issues of the fashion industry. You said, "I, I stumbled upon or I found many solutions and, and different materials and things. And do you remember that first one that you said, wow, it's actually possible to do it in another way. And do you, do you remember that moment? You're like, okay, this is a, this potentially is a positive story and not just let's make it a bit less dirty or a bit cleaner, but still it is in, in, in effect, it's, it's fossil fuel, nylon, etc. Like, do you remember stumbling upon an example there that really triggered you into, into the positive side of things? Definitely. On my birthday one year, September 18th, I met uh, someone who became a tremendous mentor of mine, Nina Morenzi, who started the Sustainable Angle. And the Sustainable Angle is a London-based organization whose advisory board I now sit on and who sources sustainable materials for the fashion industry from all over the world. She's been doing this for almost 12 years now. (laughs) It was not cool when she started (laughs) at all, but she came from a degree in regenerative agriculture and she was reading about cotton and she realized, wow, this needs to change. We cannot continue growing cotton like this with all the water irrigation and all the pesticide and herbicide uses in order to make clothes that are sold for far too little money and do not reward anybody along their supply chain. So she set up the sustainable angle and it is providing a service that is invaluable to the fashion industry because many designers, if they start to learn about sustainability and they want to make a change, it was almost impossible to do so before the sustainable angle because looking for sustainable materials was like searching for a needle in a haystack. They were impossible to find. They were not gathered into one place. So Nina has the sustainable angle where you can source sustainable fabrics all year round, but you can also go to the Future Fabrics Expo, which is once a year. It's coming up in June 2022. Very exciting in London. I love it. It's a hub of innovators. There's so many sustainable materials and they're uh, the, the suppliers who make them, who you can talk to at their booths, but also seminars all day long with speakers from all over the world, uh, digital and in person, talking about incredible 
innovations and solutions. Some of them are not yet on the market and some of them are commercially available. And so these materials, just, just to describe, like you, you, she stumbled upon cotton as, as an enormous polluter. So how, what do you replace cotton with? Or how do you do cotton differently? Or maybe there are two different questions. Like what, what are examples of materials you're very excited about? Like we're talking now in, in spring 2022, um, stuff that is commercially available, which means at a certain scale, not enormous, but maybe at a certain scale that if you're running uh, a fashion brand or, or you need materials, and, and like what, what are exciting ones you've seen coming out over the last, the last period? Well, the straightforward answer is that organic cotton is a much better solution than conventionally grown cotton. There are restrictions on irrigation and also there won't be the, the use of heavy duty chemicals. But a more exciting answer is that look first where you are. Localize. So are you in a desert? Cotton is a thirsty crop, but also likes hot weather. It's a disaster for climate change, basically. So it's grown all over deserts, and it's irrigated with water that should never have been pulled out of the river nearby. So going to crops that replace cotton that are grown in wetter climates where you don't need to irrigate, such as flax and hemp, those crops are amazing for European countries because they can be and used to be grown widely all over Europe without any fertilization and without any irrigation. Unfortunately, what happened fairly recently in the last 40, 40 some years is that all said the fairly recently, I thought last few months, but yeah, no, no, it's in, in the blips of time, recently in the history 40, 50, of the Earth, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that all the processing equipment for hemp and for flax was bought by Asian countries, mostly Asian countries. So it doesn't any longer exist in Europe. So this is one of the contributors to why Europe doesn't grow its own flax and hemp anymore. Sometimes if you if you buy a piece of garment, a garment that is called kind of Belgian linen, usually it's not even grown in Belgium. It may, it, Belgium, it may be processed in Belgium still, but the growing is very likely to have happened in India or in China, and the processing will have happened there too, which is great in order for, for localization of processing. The processing equipment should always be near to where the material was grown, but we need to get that back into Europe. So whether it's building new machines for Europe or buying them back in, and, and distributing them more evenly around the world, that would help hugely to reduce our our reliance on cotton and something interesting happened in the US around cotton uh, horribly and interesting is that it was really used as a defense mechanism to bring down the lives of people of color in the US it was it was weaponized because originally in the US again hemp and flax were grown widely and they're very resilient to drought and wetness and they're just they're just an amazing crop basically and the processing can be done locally without any chemicals and then they were replaced by cotton which is a hugely vulnerable crop and so it needs pesticides and herbicides and it needs different machinery and it needs irrigation and it needs lots of tending it's much more time intensive so this is historically a, a really big deal in the, the social perfect, history the perfect solution for slavery basically that's the the end yeah if you want if you want to tie people to the yeah. land and to chemicals tie to the land, land and, and to keep cotton. them in service, it, it's just, it, it works really well. And it worked really well. So moving away from cotton is important socially and environmentally and in terms of logistics and transport. We, we don't need to be growing so much cotton. We can reduce our need for cotton by transitioning to these other materials. And that may not be 100%. You might, the feeling of hemp is different than cotton. 
it can be refined to be smooth, but also you can just blend it with cotton. So you could reduce your cotton intake by half by just blending it with with a hemp material. So that is is a really fantastic solution. Also, hemp for fiber needs to be <laughs> separated away from hemp for CBD and THC because if you see them as one plant and one species, you're you're going to outlaw. Hemp, which is again what happened in many many countries, people were required to stop growing this traditional fabric material because of the FDA's of the world, because of the drug administrations of the world, who said no 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 you can't grow that anymore. And everyone's like yeah but it doesn't produce a drug, and they're like it doesn't matter it's the same family. It's the same so that, you know yeah. just like yeah. these kind of big stupidities that. In the end, change the course of history in such a dramatically negative way. We need to examine this and look at how we can how we can fix that and how we can go back to growing these fashion materials that are so much easier on the environment and on human welfare as well. And do they fit? Because it's, I'm, I'm really not obviously a fashion material expert. Like flax and and hemp and linen to a certain extent as well. Do they fit into these? in the rotations we would like farmers to do? Like, this is an easy, I would say, plug-in, quote-unquote, almost, to to do that. Do they also produce food? It's like, wh where does the fiber-ish come from? Is it do you harvest or food or fiber when it comes to flax? Because I think you can flax seeds, you can also eat them. Like, how does it, would that look like in Europe, for instance? Would it be a relatively easy um, way to integrate them? Of course, then there's the processing, which has to come, which probably needs some new machinery, smaller, more localized, etc. But that, I'm imagining with a lot of the, the new robotics, et cetera, that should be possible. But does it fit easily into into the, the current rotations that many organic farmers and biodynamic farmers need to do to keep to keep their soil going? Is it a, is, is it an easy sell, let's say, to, to the farming community or at least the, the advanced farming community? Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. About the question of food and fiber, we should definitely ask a biodynamic farmer because I don't know if it's the same species of flax that makes linen as you can eat the seeds and the oil. It could be, um, but I, yeah, I don't want to answer it incorrectly. Really cool. yeah. <laughs> but from an investment point of view, I can answer that question and say one need for investment is to invest into the infrastructure of the processing of these materials. Like I mentioned before, we need to build new machinery for Europe or we need to buy the machinery back from and the, the brands are there too. Like the, the brands are there. Let's say the machinery would be invested in and would be built. Do you see interest, strong interest from brands to to that want this transparency coming from Europe, that wants this localized, um, let's say, localized stream? Like, is there the potential of offtake? Which there's the same discussion in food, obviously. Yeah, we should bring back this, we should grow this. But always the question is, okay, is there um, at least a front runner market ready to 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 buy these things, which Definitely. makes it a lot easier to sell to farmers? Sustainable fashion is a hot topic now. Everyone's interested. Everyone wants to participate, but brands don't have the money to buy this machinery. It's super expensive. It's like millions of euros are needed to invest in this machinery. It's not cheap. They're very big machines. They process a lot at once, and, and it's a hefty investment to buy one even. 
and then to you know the the logistics around it so it we need financing for this to work we need and and in general in the sustainable fashion movement it's relatively small businesses and in the unsustainable fashion industry it's relatively big businesses so right now we need to encourage the big businesses to move into the sustainable fashion industry to start putting their orders in and behind and and guarantee or commit to making orders once these technologies become available and to just express their interest that would help so much so that's I, i think activism is the answer for that is getting people to talk about this and getting people to be inspired by the idea that they can change the world. And this is what I love about the consulting that I do to transition fashion brands to become more sustainable is the look on people's faces when you explain to them how they can be heroes. And I mean that they can literally change the world through their business, but right now they're causing problems with it. So, and it's not, it's not as difficult. So describe how it works. Like they, they ask you to, to become a consultant or I'm, I'm imagining you also give your opinion, let's say un, unquestioned when you're or unasked when you're in, in these meetings You say, did you know that you could become a hero or how, how would, how do you approach that when you are, let's say in a boardroom of a, of a large, large, semi-large fashion uh, brand? Well, I definitely industry? start chatting about it on photo shoots all the time. And this is, it's a question I get asked a lot, actually, like, how do I feel and how do I reconcile working with brands who are causing damage, who are not sustainable, working with them as a model with my activism? And at the moment, I still feel like it's necessary to take modeling work with brands who are not sustainable because it gives me an access point that I would never have otherwise. I mean, it's just, it's incredible to walk into a shoot and be with head designers and CEOs and chat all day, chit chat chat about how amazing sustainability is and what they can do and all these fun innovations around materials and how it just isn't as difficult or as scary as they may have thought. And one one big issue in consulting now is greenwashing that many, many businesses are starting to feel like they can just talk about sustainability whether or not they've done anything and i my biggest piece of advice for that for anybody is only talk about the things you've already done do not talk about your ambitions and do not celebrate your ambitions because an ambition is something Net in the future in 20, 2050 and that you've never like done that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so you will you will get criticized on that because the press now the media are so much better educated than they were even last year even three years ago people will find you out because also consumers are educating themselves. They want to buy from businesses that are doing something better and at least are showing the progress that they're making and setting ambitions and targets is not the same as making progress. (laughs) I've even seen situations from very big institutions that I probably shouldn't name, but who, who have increased the gravity of their ambitions without even explaining what they've already achieved on their ambitions from last year. I'm like, what? Like, what? Nice that makes release. no yeah. sense at all. That yeah. makes yeah. no sense. And I'm supposed to sit here and clap? Like, that's not okay. That is not progress. So yeah, greenwashing, I think that's the biggest solution is just don't talk about anything that you haven't done yet. And has it shifted like in... Like in food, you see that, let's say the smaller or medium-sized companies, we just had a, an interview, it might be out already when, when this will air, um, with Grounded, with Gijs Boers and on like, um, 
really regeneratively grown or use regenerative practices, pepper and, and other spices and tea, etc., from Sub-Saharan Africa. And they supply to a lot of brands in Europe that they see these middle-sized brands that really want transparency, want this good story, but also want certain quality and certain size because they're not tiny, tiny startup. They're not an enormous Unilever, but they're sort of in the middle. And they seem to really be taking off. They're growing fast. The consumer is really embracing um, the, the front runner consumer obviously is embracing are are embracing these these brands. Is that happening as well in in the fashion side? Like that the consumer starts to and does the big brands start to worry because they're actually starting to choose other things? Do you see that as been is the the let's say is the pace increasing? Because of course the the small ones were always there, but are they starting to become slightly a a, a bigger force in the space and thus more serious? Or are we not there yet on this sort of tipping, almost tipping point, I would say? So what seems to be happening in fashion is that when these bigger businesses get involved, they usually want to do a capsule collection with sustainable materials, which is mm-hmm. kind of annoying, if I may say so myself. It's like Which means they do one collection with materials, they do, but they leave it they out. They do one uh, tiny collection. It's not even their main collection or their whole season. They just do six pieces with one sustainable material and then they get the, to enjoy the PR off of that. And it's just not real, it's not truthful, and it's not honest. So I don't suggest that brands do this. It, it's more impactful to say, if you're a big brand, just change your lining material. Make sure that you're sourcing organic lining for your entire what, what, collection. What, what is lining for every, so every garment, fashion I dummy used, that's listening? Yeah. I, I used to think that a coat, say, is made of wool. Okay, done. No, not at all. A coat is made of a wool outer. It has plastic buttons. It has a lining made of probably lyocell or silk if it's expensive. It has fusing to keep the lining together with the outer material. It has shoulder pads. It may have a zip as well. It may have come in a carrier bag made out of a synthetic polyester. Like, wow, so many materials. So imagine an entire collection of a really big business. They've used a lining, a fashion business. They've used a lining material, which is usually made from trees or from cotton. Trees would be lyocell or a sustainable version is tencel. And they, they, they buy that one material in huge quantities because they're going to line their whole collection with it. So that makes an impact. When you change So that's your, the entry point, you would say, okay, the lowest I would say hanging fruit. That's fruits. the best one. Take your biggest spend as a as a fashion brand uh, whatever material that is your highest quantity order and change that you won't get the biggest pr impact though because who wants to tell a story about all this lining that's sustainable like i get it from a pr point of view it's not as valuable but it's truthful and it's honest and that's you making the biggest deal which i would argue that consumers now do want to hear stories like that that's actually a more interesting story because it educates as well it doesn't misguide the consumer another story that i wanted to tell off the back of this question is about how these businesses that are larger can start to really truly support their supply chain and the farmers down at the bottom end of their supply chain. Bottom not being derogatory at all, but bottom being baseline, like at the beginning of the story where the materials were grown. Build relationships with them that go beyond just visiting the farm. Like this I've heard from farmers a lot, especially I'm thinking particularly of an amazing farm in the US that is 10,000 acres in northern Montana on the border of Canada. It's incredible what they're doing. They are really working at the cusp of, at the, at the height of regenerative agriculture. They want to transition into biodynamics. They're, they're working with a lot of biodynamic methods already. So they are finding that they're, the businesses that source 
their crops are really interested in the ways that they're growing. They even want to come and visit the farm and make sure that they're really growing them in these regenerative ways. But they don't want to make any different a commitment to this farm than they would any other normal supplier. So in fact, what they're doing is taking a lot of time away from the team when they come and visit. They're not paying for those visits. They're not adding value to the farm by visiting. And they're not making commitments that are regenerative in the economic side of things. Meaning that they're not <laughs> taking they advantage take of pictures or, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> they're, yeah. They're not they're not experimenting with CSAs, community supported agriculture. They're they're not buying ahead of time. Like that would be the most helpful thing, is what I'm finding for, for farmers, is that farmers just imagine if you were growing something and you had to pay for the whole thing to be grown before you got money for it. Oh wait, that's our normal system. That's what every farmer has to, to do. to six months later after yep. you harvest it and you don't even know. It's not fair. Sometimes against prices, etc. No, no, it's, it's, it's just an, not fair. I mean, better so, offtake agreements is is the key, is one of the keys, but a big key, let's say, to to unlocking money. You, you mentioned just one step back to, to biodynamic. Do you remember when you stumbled upon biodynamic? It feels sort of like the next phase. I mean, you were looking, going deep into materials like, do you remember what the first time you heard about biodynamic farming? What did you think? And what was it really like? Like, what was that, that, that meeting with biodynamic, let's say? How, how was that? Or how did that happen? Well, I went to Steiner Waldorf schools. And so I knew about biodynamics as a child and spent the night on, the on a biodynamic yeah. farm when yeah. I was 10. Yeah, in the US, in Tucson, Arizona, and Santa Fe, New Mexico. And so I knew about biodynamics my whole life and always thought it was great and then forgot about it when I went into fashion. And then when I started my sustainability journey, my mom reminded me. <laughs> I, start, I, I was learning that everything that in, in fashion, all this information that I was gathering kept leading me back to soil. It's all grown for us in soil. So my mom at this point said, oh, why don't you go and spend some time on a biodynamic farm? Remember those? And so I started to do just that. And that was when... I fell in love with biodynamics, realized it was a climate solution, and started DIRT, this charity that I now run, uh, which is aiming or, or is there to support soil regeneration globally. And the way that we do that is by so supporting biodynamic farming initiatives all over the world, um, very global, and creating demand for biodynamic produce raising awareness about what biodynamics is because there are so many confusions around, around what biodynamics is. I mean, let's unpack. So what, are you, what would you, <laughs> I would love to hear some of those stories, but let's start with, for anybody that doesn't know, I'll put some links in, in the in the show notes below. What, how would you describe biodynamic farming for, let's say on a photo shoot, you're being asked by the CEO, okay, I heard about this biodynamic farming. What would you tell him or her, unfortunately, some usually him, um, what this type of farming or what this, approach almost to life actually is what what is it to you and what how do you describe this normally to to somebody that really doesn't know anything about this this type of agriculture or agriculture so, in general so biodynamic farming is one type of agriculture that can be used in any setting on land it doesn't have to be to grow crops it can be used to a forest an area it can be used in ecosystem regeneration it can be used to repair a mining scar. Biodynamic farming is a richly nutritious way to farm soil. It centers around composting, and you need animal manure in order to build the most robust compost, which feeds the microlife under soil. 
What's special about biodynamics that is that goes beyond its techniques and it could be said that biodynamics is a, an umbrella of regenerative agriculture and you can use all the regenerative techniques like agroforestry or rotational grazing, mobile grazing underneath that umbrella. But what is different about biodynamics is the preparations. And the preparations are nine liquid tinctures that are made on the farm and sprayed across the farm for very specific uses. One is sprayed on compost, six of them are sprayed on compost, one is sprayed on soil, one is sprayed on the leaves of the trees before they bud, things like that, like super specific applications. And they're all made of ingredients from mineral, from plant, and from animals. And with very specific recipes at very specific times of year, and this is the practice behind biodynamics. And you, at the end of the, the time of the making of the preparations, you might bury them for six months and then dig them up. And you've got this incredible rich humus that is just turbocharged micro life for, for soil and for fertility and for biodiversity. And what biodynamics sees is that why biodynamics makes these preparations is for the life within plants. Because look at a plant, it's green, it's growing, you can sometimes even eat it, you can smell it. Something in it is keeping it alive and we can see that when it dies. It looks very different, it's gray and shriveled. So that's the life force within it. And biodynamics recognizes that there is one and you can farm it and you do that with the preparations. They work on the non-physical aspect of the plants, of the animals, of the humans, and of the earth. This is the medicine for the earth that biodynamics has, which is extremely special right now in the face of climate change. And these preparations were developed in 1924 as a remedy for climate change. And what happened to biodynamic farming that it I would say didn't take, I mean, this we're starting to find out like on the, let's say the, the um, traditional academic scientific, like our, slowly catching up with this let's say and starting to to scientifically prove all of these methods that there's there's a lot of it in it and and it's it's working at scale at any scale i mean we've seen examples everywhere and somehow biodynamic farming this the moment you mention it you always get this chuckle like oh yeah these are the, the weirdos in the corner and it's really odd because it is such a practical set of practices and and somehow now it seems like regenerative agriculture is taking off and applying most of these, talking immensely about fermentation and, and all of that in life, in plants, in soil, etc. So why why didn't that happen with biodynamic farming? Like what was, what went, I wouldn't say wrong, but why did it take this weird curve to the right or the left into, into weirdo land instead of mainstream? Do yeah, you have an idea? Because you've studied this, you've, you've it, looked deep into this and, and why, why did that turn happen? I definitely don't have the complete answer for that question, but I can ponder it for a while. It's nearly 100 years old, it's 98 years old right now, and organic agriculture came out of biodynamic agriculture, and that's often misunderstood. It seemed, it's, it's kind of talked about that biodynamic agriculture builds on organic agriculture, but actually ag organic came out of biodynamics and was a simplification of biodynamics. That served a purpose and has been amazing in marketing and, and changing the way we think about mostly food, not fashion as much. Uh, but right now, I think we need a more complex solution for nature because nature is very complex and actually can't be simplified down into one specific formula. And often, not always, because there are some regenerative organic farmers who are doing incredible things, but often organic 
can be just the same formula as conventional, but a less toxic version than. So it's still plant the seed, fertilize the seed, harvest the crop, and plant the seed again. And it just follows this kind of circle that isn't really full of life and isn't really regenerating soil nor biodiversity around it. Um, but to go back to your question, I think that the people who are attracted to biodynamics are wonderfully humble and don't value shouting about the amazing things that they're doing. And so that has naturally meant that the movement remains smaller and quite internally facing, which is quite a beautiful thing when you think about it. No one's showing off. Everyone's just doing their good work and it's amazing. So I invite everyone to get into biodynamics, go and learn about it, go and visit a biodynamic farm if they want you to visit, obviously. Be respectful. Yeah, and do Farmers you pay don't for always it or want. <laughs> yeah. Do you pay for offer it something. or buy a lot exactly. of things? Exactly. Offer or... something to them and, and be really grateful that you can go and spend time with them because they're amazing. Biodynamic farmers are the most intelligent people I've ever met or spent time with. I mean, what this practice does to humans is incredible. They're on another level of being human. Their conversations, the way they think, their observance of the land around them, it's very, very special. This quality of sensitivity is heightened and heightened when you're doing these biodynamic practices. What is very unique about it as well is that it is certified in many places. Like there is a certification, there is a certain standard that you have to, like before you can call yourself obviously biodynamically certified, like what, how did that happen? And do you think it avoided the pitfalls of organic, which with the certification that they asked the, the government to come in in the US specifically, but in other places as well to certify it. And that led to, of course, a boom in organic, but also let's say the loss of the the original principles and and like you said it's it's just a less toxic version in many cases some cases it isn't in many cases it's very large scale relatively extractive large plowing machines etc it's not viewing the farm as a holistic entity or a holistic organism do you think that biodynamic certification has avoided that pitfall the certifying body of biodynamics is called Demeter and Demeter exists all over the world and is wonderfully independent of itself in a way and it's I think that is a protection mechanism that we should really respect so there are many many entities of Demeter all over the world uh, most of which can offer the certification some of which just promote biodynamics but basically each territory around the world has its own Demeter and that means that communication around the world can sometimes be uh, a challenge to make it all the same, but it also, again, as I said, it protects from this this unification, this like centralization that can often lead to lower quality everything. So I really respect this about the biodynamic movement that they have maintained this autonomy in different regions, understanding that different regions have different needs. Nevertheless, the the standard of the certification is equally as high everywhere in the world. And what would you tell to investors? Imagine we're in a, in a large theater, we do this in person and the room is full of, or the, the audience is full of, of investors that are, are curious, obviously, because otherwise they wouldn't have come. It's, we're, we're talking about soil, we're talking about life, we're talking about really good food and fibers and materials. What would you tell them when they walk out? Obviously, we're not giving investment advice, but when they walk out of that theater tonight after the, what, what should they do the next day? Should they visit that farm? Should they search for, where would they... Where would you send them to learn more and to start getting active 
um, not maybe immediately buying a few million euros worth of, of flex processing machinery, but where would you send them to learn more where, where we definitely need more, uh, let's say, investment resources in this space? Is it to grow the farms? Is it to, to grow the, uh, the processing? Where would you send them to, to, start, to start getting to work? Well, there's something very interesting happening with Demeter and with biodynamics globally, which is that this is a certified, meaning all these farms are of a similar caliber all over the world. So think about carbon crediting and how that voluntary carbon market right now is a, I guess we could say mess sometimes. I was going to say the <laughs> same, wanna, yeah. You were, okay, good. <laughs> understa understatement, but it's, it's a bit messy, yeah. It's all over the place. Let's put it that way kindly. It's all over the place because it's new and... And there are many uh, conflicting views about it, first of all, I, and I'd like to highlight the indigenous point of view or many, many indigenous points of view is that the carbon market itself is, is deeply flawed because it's capitalistic. So when you put a, a value on something that is of nature, you are undermining its intrinsic value without its monetary value, and that can be really dangerous. And let's listen to indigenous peoples because they are the wisdom holders. They have been protecting our earth forever. And a lot of different groups of people have constantly trampled on their teachings, ways, knowledge, and themselves, their cultures. So that's just a caveat that I am... I want to share that opinion that we need to we need to take that into account as we look at the carbon market and the nature market. And biodynamics has a, a unique opportunity to be able to look at and consider its nature value because biodynamic farmers are offering so many services to the public good. So many. And it's not but they only get paid for their crops. And that is something that is just really mind-boggling me right now. And how I want to find a solution for this. These biodynamic farmers deserve to be remunerated for the services that they are providing humanity and the earth. And those include things like water absorption and retention. On biodynamic farms is so much higher than neighboring farms, always. Then you know, reduction in um, fire, because fires don't burn as well on a farm that is absorbing so much water. So those, again, two very, very good solutions. They um, increase quality of life to farmers. Biodynamic farmers are not as vulnerable to the, the mental health issues that tragically... And the physical health one. <laughs> tragically. I mean, yeah. suicide rates in farming are higher than pretty much every national average. It's horrific that these are the people who grow everything we need for us. And yet they're in such an impossible situation, mostly brought on by debt. And the debt cycle comes from the purchasing of chemicals and genetically modified seed and heavy duty machinery. That they do feel so unwell and so pressurized that they're actually willing to take their life. I mean, it's just, this is so not okay. And as a society, we need to figure out a solution where we can start supporting farmers in a way that actually makes them feel good about their lives because of the services that they're providing. So to carry on with the list of the services that biodynamic farmers are providing, increased biodiversity on the farm. And also farms act as a safe haven for endangered species because they can come and live on that farm without the spraying of chemicals, for instance. There is a, the list goes on and on. I've been able to find about 10 or 15 
incredible services that farmers could be paid for. So I'm thinking about earth assets rather than carbon credits, because the mainstream climate narrative, you may have noticed, is in a bit of a carbon tunnel. People are only talking about carbon, and when you only talk about carbon, you don't have time to talk about any of the other really, really, really important urgent aspects that we need to resolve in order to avoid a climate crisis. If we're talking about net zero by 2050, and that's the only thing we do, we won't win. Even if we sequestered all the extra atmospheric carbon tomorrow, we would still be in climate change because it is not only a carbon problem, it's also a pollution problem, it's also an ocean, ocean acidification problem, it's a also water a, cycle a, problem. No. a what? A water cycle problem. And there are I people that argue. No, no, like, no, no. Yes, that's, sure, that's, that's it's also a motorcycle a problem. problem too. <laughs> but not the biggest one. I mean, you can do some meditation on that, on the motorcycle diaries. But I think there are people arguing even that the carbon is a. Is, is, a, is a symptom of a broken water cycle of our land being not full of life and thus full of water. And we should focus. Uh, Walter Jena, I will put a link below, we interviewed him, makes a very strong point of uh, most of the heating comes from a broken water cycle, not from carbon. Doesn't mean we shouldn't worry about carbon, no. but it is a very small piece or it's a piece of a much bigger a puzzle. Yeah. But then and how do we you... compensate for that without becoming the issue again of a capitalistic system or the issue again of what we've done so many times with indigenous peoples, etc. that we, as soon as we put a price on it, let's say we also argue that if, if this forest is worth a billion, which Charles Eisenstein just brought up in a previous interview, which should be added now, otherwise we'll, we'll link it below. Like then if we pay 2 billion for it, we should cut it down and we should develop that mine underneath. Like how do we avoid that? That reasoning of as soon as we put a price on it, it means that when we pay that price or more, we can do whatever we want with it. Like, how do we, this is a whole different rabbit hole we go into, but do you, like, what has your research until now? I'm not saying there should be an answer, et cetera. How would you approach that when we want to start paying as soon as possible biodynamic farmers and land stewards for the immense um, services. I, I also don't like the word ecosystem services, but let's say ecosystem services they provide. How do we start tomorrow without digging ourselves into, into another hole that we don't want to get into? Well, I think that to start in, in my space is the Demeter certification guarantees a certain quality of farming. So that therefore it's kind of easier to say these farms are of, of a similar ilk. And so we can guarantee that this is happening on these farms because it's part of our certification. These farmers deserve to be at least recognized. First of all, just recognize them for what they're doing. Then a later stage would be to actually pay them for what they're doing. And maybe that needs to come out of subsidies. Maybe taxpayer money could go there. I mean, I would feel amazing if I knew that my taxpayer money were going to ecosystem services that support farmers to grow richly nutritious food as a byproduct amazing like how great would that be because Instead right now i know subsidies that yeah. are doing something very different yeah right yeah. now i know where my taxpayer money is going when it comes to agricultural subsidies and i am personally through my taxes paying for the purchasing of immense amounts of chemicals that are destroying the earth when they're mined when they're created in a lab also in transport also when they're applied to soil and insects and plants it's it's just crazy that I'm paying for that and I don't want to be paying for that. So I think that is the first shift. And, and I want to recognize that I'm not saying take subsidies away from the farmers who are 
using those subsidies to survive. Not at all. I'm saying use subsidies to support farmers to transition to farm in a way that's nature friendly, hopefully biodynamic. Farmers want to farm this way. No farmer wants to destroy soil. No farmer is sitting on their land going, I want to kill all the microlife under the soil. Not at all. Like farmers are really intelligent, amazing humans who are who are just stuck in a cycle that isn't a system that isn't working and we need to educate out of it and provide exits. I have two questions that I always like to ask based on that actually. So what if you had a magic wand and you had one thing you could change, could be in fashion, could be in land use, could be in in general, could be global consciousness. But if you had, and most people then say, yeah, I would like to change two things. So I would like to force you to do one thing only, but if you have two, it's also fine. What would you, what would you change overnight? Like tomorrow morning, we all wake up and Arizona changed one thing. What would that be? I mean, maybe we didn't know that you did it. Obviously you don't need the credit, but what if, if you had that amazing power and responsibility, what would that be? I'm smiling now because I'm going to go really radical on you. And my activism is quite radical. I read the most radical people and I love it. The most radical makes the most sense. It's the most logical. And so what I'm going to say here is get ourselves out. I would, if I had a magic wand, get ourselves out of this domination cycle. We are conditioned to think that domination is our status quo. We need to dominate. We do it in all our relationships, our relationship with the earth, our relationship with our children, our relationship with our friends and partners, our relationships professionally. They're all about domination built on domination. We need to change this around, learn from people like Rianne Eisler, for instance, who wrote wrote a whole book on the partnership way, which is one great asset when you're trying to learn how to relearn, recondition yourself into a more positive way of being because when you stop living in a dominating way, you have much more space to be curious. Your creativity can grow and you can make decisions that you would otherwise not have made. We need this in the face of climate change because climate change is a human behavioral problem. It's not a carbon problem, as we were saying. It's it's just us. We need to change the way we think. And there are many, many ways to do this. Go in and learn from indigenous peoples. They all know this. They've been doing this forever. And if you're a white European descent person, you have indigenous roots too. Took me ages to realize this, but I used to think, oh, the glorious people with brown skin, they have indigenous roots. I do too. Every one of us does. Look at the Druids if you're from Britain. They have incredible rituals and ways of thinking that are more distant, so it's harder to find the European ones because they got wiped out longer ago than the ones in North America, for instance, and South America. But that wisdom is what's going to fuel our future. It's the most exciting learning I've ever done. I just recently read a book. Yeah, very, very good and radical. But I wouldn't say, I mean, we're used to something on this podcast. And (laughs) I I will definitely link um, the books of Rian below as well. And... I read a book, I, I'm going to remember the title, probably Talking for the Trees, I think, or To Speak for the Trees, mm-hmm. on someone in Ireland that was the last one that got the traditional knowledge. Like She was specifically picked by the community that when the last standing forest in, in Ireland, which uh, there are not many anymore, and especially now, and she was trained in everything. Like She was trained, she got all the, the full, as we would say now, download, but of course then uh, back in the day she didn't. And she went into academia and slowly but surely in the US, she basically proved, scientifically proved all the things she learned already when she was a teenager, which is a, it's a fascinating short book. I'll put the, the title below. 
in the show notes as well. And it was re it's really interesting that because we need those bridges between and she was very, very lucky and we are lucky because she wrote it down. And some things are, are because she, she mentioned a lot of the trees at the end and a lot of the recipes, a lot of the healing. We don't know anymore because it got lost uh, with the Celts, I think. Um, and but there are still bridges back to that. Of course, it's it's longer ago than we would like to. Um, but I know many farmers that in places start to to go deep into old agricultural or architecture books to to understand what was grown here and what made sense in, in places. People go back all the way to Roman times, but of course we have to go back way further to start seeing. Okay, what made sense here? What was the context? What was the place like? What what grows well together? What doesn't? What makes? I mean, a lot of this has been developed probably lost because it wasn't written down or it was written down and then burned at some point or was just told in oral oral history and unfortunately we we lost a lot of that but there is still some some of that around and and we need to really make sure we capture it and and start re reusing it and and buy that see see how it works and if it works yeah it holds so many answers and so many tips about what is going to work in the future so thinking from an investment point of view if you're looking for what really is going to be a climate resilient investment learn all this about the indigenous people i mean all the secrets are hidden there so that then you can use that knowledge to apply it to what businesses are available right now to invest into the ones who are aligned with what indigenous people say those ones are going to succeed and it's a perfect bridge to the second question people frequent listeners from the podcast uh, if you made it until now you must be probably a frequent listener how would you invest money if you let's say a billion dollars or a billion euros, let's keep it in, in Europe for now. I mean, you can invest it everywhere. If you had to put that to work, obviously I'm not looking for the exact euro amounts uh, behind the comma, etc. I don't care. I would care more about what would you prioritize? What would you, what would be the main themes you would focus on uh, in a short time or a longer time if you had to put this amount of, of money to work? Nature tech solutions, looking at biomimicry, ocean regeneration, land regeneration, but not through technological machinery because that is it's too costly to build. The investment that it absorbs, first of all, I mean, the billions that go into making machines to regenerate, it doesn't make sense. Just do it with by putting that billion, those billions into people because people need jobs and people do better things with money than machines do, definitely. <laughs> And I would look at simple things like like killing two birds with one stone. For instance, I've been thinking a lot about uh, automobile pollution. We have roads. We're not going to stop using them anytime soon. Instead, what we're do what we're doing is building cars that use batteries, but we don't have a good uh, system for disposing of batteries or recycling batteries right now. So they're also causing immense amount of problems, even though they are a solution for air pollution. But what about just planting? greenery on the edge of every single road to absorb a lot of the pollution so that it doesn't get into our lungs so that it doesn't get into our farms because so many farms are on the roadside and what is that doing with the diesel particulate matter in the air it's getting on our food that's not okay it's getting into our soil also one of the biggest plastic pollutions is tires as they drive on the road and disintegrate and that's all going by the roadside so we need a buffer on the side of every single road, and that should be a prioritization from municipalities. Get a buffer on every road legally and plant it with native species of plants, have it tended to by local communities, make it a community event. I think making everything we do into a community event can really increase the power of it. It's free marketing, but also it brings people together and makes people happier. 
And when you go to, I don't know if you go to, like, like let's say agroecology or regenerative agriculture, even biodynamic, actually when you go to biodynamic conferences, where where are you contrarian? Where in your group, in your bubble, let's say, no, bubble is a bad word, in, in a positive sense, where do you think differently? And it's definitely a question inspired by, by John Kempf. Like, what do you believe to be true about uh, biodynamic farming that others don't? And, and what do you, others in your own scene, because I'm curious where you, you think differently. What's the, uh, the, where you stand out when you go to, to, to these kind of meetings? I found that I think of biodynamics at scale. I think of biodynamics covering all the terrestrial land that humans manage. And I think that the biodynamic movement hasn't been thinking so big like that. And I hope that that's going to happen. And I know there are many, I'm not saying I'm the only person thinking about that, and I'm not trying to chew my own horn at all, but I have received feedback from people in the biodynamic movement saying, oh, wow, I wasn't thinking of it as such a big scale solution. And so I'd like to run with that and, and keep going because it is an incredible climate solution with so many opportunities. Why do you think that is? Why is there hasn't been, I'm not saying you're the first one or the only one, like you mentioned, but few, let's say, talking about, okay, how do we do a region, a country, an island, a bioregion, landscape in these agroecology, life-focused, holistic view, biodynamic farming? Like what, what has been holding back? I see that in region in general as well. Like it's very, we're very much focused on the farm level. And then sort of what happens beyond the farm gate is like, yeah, but if your whole landscape is moving backwards, it would be nice if it moves forward. It makes your life a lot easier because if your neighbor isn't spraying like crazy or has been polluting the river, I mean, you are all in the same system. So I would imagine there's a lot of work going into landscape scale regeneration and there's surprisingly not so much happening there. What has been holding back the biodynamic movement to to think at scale? Because it is, I mean... We, I will link below the, the interview we did with, with La Viala in, in Tuscany. It's more than 1,200 hectares under management, plus a lot more forestry. Like, scale is definitely there. Maybe not so known, but it's there. Like, what has been holding back the rest of the, the movement there to, to start thinking or dreaming, maybe, about, about scale? I wonder if it's because farmers are so busy. They're so busy managing the amount of work and the amount of land that they have. Maybe it takes non-farmers coming into this space and going, how can we think big? What can I do to help you expand? Which is the question that I ask every biodynamic farmer I meet. How can I support the amazing work that you're already doing so that this can become one of the most important climate solutions out there? And maybe it takes that. And to wrap up, I mean, I usually ask a final question and then it's never the final question, but what what are you busy with this? Like, what are you excited about, let's say, over the next month as we're going into summer 2022, depending obviously when you're listening to this, but let, we're talking spring, early spring, depending where you are, let's say spring 2022 on the Northern Hemisphere, um, which I learned lately, actually, that according to indigenous peoples, usually the North was down and the South was up, which is very interesting from our perspective, but let's, let's spark that for a second. What, what are you excited about for this summer? Um, in terms of uh, of your work on your activism on let's say the most radical stuff what what's gonna what are we what we should look out for from from you and your team in terms of what i'm learning about that i'm most excited is i've gotten into the divine feminine i feel like that's the next step and it's it's the one after the domination stuff 
it's incredible. When you learn about the, well, I'll just leave it there. It's, it's incredible. Go and look at Divine Feminine stuff. Mary Magdalene, Hildegard, all of these stories and legends and, and the way modern people are thinking about it now, academics as well as citizens. It's, it's really adding a lot to the way I think. Then also, I'm really excited about COP27, which is coming up in November and the preparation I'm doing for that with DIRT and other organizations, the Biodynamic Association in Egypt, because COP27 is in Egypt, um, and also other organizations that we may be partnering with to raise awareness about biodynamics. Excited about my consulting, uh, helping more brands to businesses to transition. I'm also have been wanting to for ages, and it looks like it's finally happened, getting into the investment world. I've been having my eye on so many businesses for the last seven years of my activism and watching them all become successful. And the ones that I thought were going to become successful did. And the ones that I thought, mm, that's not really a good idea, didn't become successful. So, so you have a good I'm eye. kind of honing in on how to choose businesses that are going to succeed. And I'm really excited about becoming a bigger part of the investing space through conversations that I'm having that kind of too fledgling to talk about now, but really excited be next about podcast. Yeah. how they will develop. Yeah. Cause, um, yeah, I love, I love the regenerative space and it turns out I have a relatively, relatively good barometer for what is going to work and what isn't. And I think that's because I'm working as much as I can to take my ego out of it. This isn't about me. I'm doing this work because I love it. I'm enriched on a daily basis by the learning that I do on a daily basis to educate myself about the climate crisis, about the earth, about human behaviors, about all of these things that intertwine and interlock. And I think I can see from a really clear point of view because of that, I'm not in it to win it in a way. I'm just in it to support because I'm the get the, the win is already there every minute that I spend of my time doing this. And speaking of time, I'm at the moment I don't pay myself at dirt and I work 45 to 55 hours a week on it. And it's amazing to be able to do that. And I feel so grateful and lucky that my modeling career is allowing me to do that. And I understand that most people do not have that privilege and I don't take it lightly at all. But that's, it's amazing to participate in the gift economy like this, to be giving my time for an organization that really needs it because dirt's fledgling and it wouldn't it wouldn't be the same if it needed to pay a CEO right now, which at some point I will need to do that. I will replace some of what I'm doing or all of what I'm doing with somebody else who's probably going to be way more skilled than I am in some things. Uh, but at the moment, it's necessary that I'm able to do this and I love it. I don't think there's a better one or a better way to end this, this conversation. We'll definitely follow up on a lot of this work on the investment side, on COP and, and all of that. I hope it's not the last time we had you on, on the podcast. And I want to uh, definitely thank you so much for your work and for coming on here to share and to, to discuss about the, the funny parts, the potential, the huge opportunities, the barriers of biodynamic farming and actually fashion. We learned a lot, I think, in these, uh, these episodes. We very rarely talk about fashion, which is and, and fibers, which is such a such an enormous industry, we sort of keep in the corner. So thank you so much for what you're doing and for coming on here to to share. And hope to see you. Hope to see you soon. It was so much fun to talk to you. Thank you so much always for everything that you're doing and just the space that you give to everyone in regenerative investment. It's so important, so important and interesting to listen to. So thank you for having me.
Thank you so much for listening all the way till the end. For the show notes and links discussed, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash post. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links we discussed in this episode, check out our website, investinginregenerativeagriculture.com forward slash posts. If you like this episode, why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts? That really helps. Thanks again and see you next time.